Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you again for the letter that Paul wrote to Timothy. And we ask that tonight as we see what it means to be a suitable servant, that you would inspire us, that you would challenge us, that you would encourage and stimulate us to godly living. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. 2 Timothy chapter 2 and verse 20. 2 Timothy chapter 2 verse 20 begins, In a large house there are articles not only of gold and silver, but also wood and clay. Some are for noble purposes, some are for ignoble purposes. And we know that to be true. At home we have the toilet plunger and the spatula. And they are for very different purposes and never the two shall pass. Right? If you try and flip your eggs with your toilet plunger, things are going to get a bit awkward. In fact, somebody pointed out to me this morning after the sermon that in fact they have articles of clay in their house. Quite a lot of them. And some are for noble purposes, bowls. And some are for ignoble purposes, toilet bowls. Right? There you go. We have it as well. The same is true for God. Verse 21, if a man cleanses himself from the latter, from that which is ignoble, he will be an instrument for noble purposes, made holy, useful to the master and prepared to do any good work. It's one of the astonishing truths of the Bible that God uses people to accomplish his ends. I mean, he uses other things when he wants to, but the main way, the chief instrument that he uses is his word through people. And God can use any person. Really, he can use the worst, the lowest, the most common. He could use Pharaoh in the Old Testament or Cyrus, the king of Persia. He could use Judas Iscariot, who betrayed Jesus. He could use Saul, a mass murderer of Christians. God can use anybody he wants to, but what God wants are suitable servants. Messengers of his word. Articles, if you like, that have been cleansed such that they will be useful to the master and prepared for any good work. And so what we're going to see in 2 Timothy 2 is firstly the qualities of the suitable. So what makes somebody suitable to serve God? And secondly, and a lot more shorter than the first bit, what is the job of these suitable servants? What would you say? If you had to spell out what makes somebody suitable to serve God. I'd probably come up with a really long list, I reckon. Paul gives Timothy just two. Two qualities, two characteristics that are required of these suitable servants. That's a very interesting start to the chapter. Paul clearly has the future of Christianity in mind. There you go. Did you ever stop to think that Paul had you in mind when he wrote the Bible? It's pretty cool. Right, chapter 2 and verse 2, four generations on view. Paul to Timothy, Timothy to men, those men to other men. And this is what Paul says. Here are the two qualifications for these suitable servants. The things you've heard me say, Paul says, in the presence of many witnesses, entrust to reliable men who will also be qualified to teach others. Here are the two things, reliable and entrusted with the gospel. Reliable and entrusted 
with the gospel. And we're going to spell that out a little bit more, but they need to be reliable. You need to know that no matter what comes, they're going to stick to it, particularly when the going gets tough, particularly when there's hardship and opposition. The suitable servant is somebody who will stay the course. Furthermore, to somebody who's been entrusted with the gospel. It's a deposit. It's something that has been given. It's not about finding something new, discovering the latest insight, providing an original contribution to the discussion. I mean, that's kind of what they talk about these days in academia. They have to have received the good deposit and in turn pass that on. So to be unreliable is a problem and to not know the gospel is a problem. Why do you need to be reliable? Well, Paul tells us, verse 3, the suitable servant needs to be reliable for hardship awaits. Endure hardship with us, Paul says. You can imagine it's one of those job ads, right? Uh, Help wanted. The pay is rubbish, but the work is hard. Who, Who wants that kind of a job? Endure hardship with us, Paul says. A whole bunch of people have already abandoned him. The going got a little bit tough. All of a sudden it looked like maybe we're going to go to jail and they just all disappeared. Endure hardship with us. And Paul provides three pictures, three illustrations, if you like, of what it means to endure hardship. Firstly, like a good soldier. Verse 3. Endure hardship like a good soldier of Jesus Christ. No one serving as a soldier gets involved in civilian affairs. He wants to please his commanding officer. No distractions. Like a soldier, no distractions. You have one commander and you know that what he tells you to do is what you're going to do and don't get sidetracked. Like a soldier, no distractions. Like an athlete with no shortcuts. Verse 5, similarly, if anyone competes as an athlete, he doesn't receive the victor's crown unless he competes according to the rules. Who knows Lance Armstrong? Let's see, who knows? Well, it's not bad, actually. Well, he's a cyclist. The world of cycling, I don't know, right? as far as I'm concerned, it's just men dressing up in tight clothes. But anyway, in the world of cycling, Lance Armstrong was a big deal. He won a lot. Right, the Tour de France is the, the epic, the most prestigious award ever. Well, not award, race, cycling race. And he's, he had won seven of them. He was held up as this bastion of sportsmanship. Look at this guy. He's amazing. He works hard. He's overcome adversity. He is the one to emulate. Everyone else in the sport was doping like mad, right? They're all just drugs this, hormones that, steroids the other. But not Lance Armstrong. Oh, no. He, he won it through sheer hard work. Until, of course, they found the proof that he'd been doping all along and he finally went, yeah, right, okay, I copped to it. And, and they stripped all his glory. No shortcuts. The athlete who competes according to the rules is the one who wins the victor's crown. The suitable servant needs to be reliable because hardship is coming like a soldier, no distractions, like an athlete, no shortcuts, and like a farmer, it's just hard work. I don't know if you've ever thought about Christian work, about the work of preaching and teaching the gospel to others, about seeing young Christians grow to be mature Christians. I don't know if you've ever been tempted to want it to happen quick, 
and easy. Well, it's not. It's long and it's arduous. I'm still learning it. I think us young people, I'm going to include myself there, we have this temptation to want it now and to want it fast and to want it easy and just to see results. And, you know, I'm going to come to Ingleburn in just one year and everyone's going to become Christian. Then I'm going to move on to the next church and the same thing's going to happen. And it's just, we need to know the reality. We need to be in it for the long haul. We need to be, the suitable servant must be reliable. But furthermore, the suitable servant must have been entrusted with the gospel. It kind of makes sense, doesn't it? If God wants messengers, they need to know the message. Fair enough. You can't go and, oh, so-and-so wants me to tell you something, but he didn't tell me what he wants you to know, so I can't tell you the thing that I'm supposed to tell you. Here is Paul's summary of the gospel. Verse 8, remember Jesus Christ, raised from the dead, descended from David. This is my gospel. It's kind of unusual, isn't it? If you ever, you ever used that one as a gospel, somebody having a conversation with somebody, they ask you what a Christian's on about. Jesus Christ, raised from the dead, descended from David. No, I can't say I have. And yet it's sufficient for Paul. He uses it as well in Romans 1. This, this is in a nutshell what really, really matters. Jesus Christ, raised from the dead, descended from David. Here is the gospel, Jesus, the risen king. There it is. There is the message that these suitable servants are to proclaim. Jesus, the risen King. No wonder it brings hardship. Imagine for a moment that Australia conquered New Zealand. Don't know why we'd want it, but anyway, imagine that we conquered New Zealand. And, uh, and, and you and I are given the message of going there and telling the Kiwis that they have a new ruler, that, that Malcolm Turnbull is their Prime Minister now as well. No, I don't think they'd like us very much anyway, but if we woke up with that message, do you think they'd welcome us? But no. They might lock us up. In fact, Paul goes on to say, for preaching this message, Jesus, the risen King... I am suffering even to the point of being chained like a criminal. They might lock us up. But that's not going to affect the king. Lock the ambassador up all you want, but the ruler still rules. God's word is not chained. Now this is the message that God wants his people to proclaim. Jesus, the risen king. And I'll tell you what, our friends and our neighbours and the Australians aren't going to like that any more than if we took over New Zealand. They're not going to like it if we come and say there is a king who rules and you must submit to him. It's going to bring hardship. For the gospel, this word, this message, it has a call with it. It's not learning facts. It's not remembering that up, down, up, down, A, B, A, B, start is the cheat. For, right, it's not that simple thing. It's a message that requires a response. Jesus, the risen king, how are you going to respond? And Paul spells out to us how we should. Verse 11. Here is a trustworthy saying. If we died with him, we will live with him. The right response to the risen king is to entrust your life into his death. It's a strange thing, isn't it? to die with him such that his life would be yours as well. 
And it's not enough just to do it once. We have to stick with it. If we endure, we will also reign with him. Like the athlete, like the farmer, like the soldier, we have to stick with it. We must be reliable. For if we disown him, he will also disown us. Make no mistake. If you turn your back on Jesus, there's nothing left. There's no other way to God. There's no other friendship to be found. If you disown him, he will disown you. Which brings us to verse 13. And to be honest, verse 13 is a bit strange. I don't know if you noticed it as we read through. Let me read again from verse 12. If we endure, we will reign with him. If we disown him, he will disown us. If we are faithless, he will remain faithful. For he cannot disown himself. It kind of sounds like verse 13 is the exact opposite of verse 12, doesn't it? If we disown, he'll disown. But if we're faithless, he'll be faithful. What does it mean? I've got two possible meanings for verse 13. Number one, it could mean this. Even if we don't keep our word, God will always keep his. Even if we don't keep our word, God will always keep his. That is, let me give you an example. Uh, Today you're a committed Christian, right? You've said... Jesus is the one, I'm sticking with him no matter what comes, I'm going to be reliable, I'm going to endure, I'm going to stay with Jesus. That's your word. And God has promised you that if you endure, you will reign with him. God is faithful to his word. But imagine you break your word. You turn your back on God. You say, you know what, I'm going to disown you after all. I don't want anything to do with you. You've been faithless. God remains faithful and his word is, if you disown me, I'll disown you. In other words, verses 11 and 12 are true for whatever situation you are in. God will always be faithful to his word. There's one possible meaning. Second possible meaning is that verse 13 is not about salvation. So verses 11 and 12 are, if you endure, you will reign. If you disown, he will disown. Verse 13 is speaking to Christians who stumble. Let me give you one example. Uh, The Apostle Peter. You remember Peter? He was the gung-ho guy. He loved Jesus more than anyone else. I'll stick with you, Jesus. No matter what happens, no matter what comes, I'll see it through to the end with you. You remember what Jesus said to Peter before the rooster crows three times? You will disown me. And what happened? Oh, you were with Jesus. No, I don't know Jesus. I don't know who you're talking about. A curse be upon you for suggesting that I know this. And the rooster crowed. There is Peter being faithless. And yet what did Jesus do in response? Do you love me? Feed my lambs. Jesus remained faithful. So it could mean that even if we break our word, God will always keep his. Or for the Christian who stumbles, God will still hold fast. And I wonder whether both meanings aren't caught up in there. Let's come back to suitable servants. They need to be reliable. They need to have been entrusted with the gospel. And there is a reason why they need to have been entrusted with the gospel. See, we get a glimpse of the job, of what they're supposed to do with this deposit as we begin verses 14 and 15. Keep reminding them of these things, Paul says to Timothy. Notice the word reminding. It's not come up with new things. It's not make sure that every week everybody learns one new little thing. Remind them. It's okay 
If you leave church one week and you think, you know what, I didn't learn anything new this week. That's okay. As long as you were reminded of Jesus, the risen King. As long as you were reminded of the truth that God speaks. Keep reminding of these things. Warn them before God against quarrelling about words. It's no value. Ruins those who are listening. Do your best to present yourself to God as one approved, a workman who does not need to be ashamed, who correctly handles the word of truth. You need to have the gospel, handle it rightly. Why? Well, because there's a whole bunch of quarrelsome, ungodly chatterers around the place. Quarrelsome, ungodly chatterers. Verse 16. Avoid godless chatter. Those who indulge in it will become more and more ungodly. And their teaching will spread like gangrene among them, Arminaeus and Philetus, who have wandered away from the truth. They say the resurrection has already taken place. They destroy the faith of some. It's a, it's a weird line, isn't it? The resurrection has already taken place, they say. Not, not Jesus' resurrection. Of course, his resurrection has already taken place. But they mean everyone's resurrection. It's already happened. The judgment day has come and gone. If there's no more judgment to come, you can do whatever you want. Avoid godless chatter. Because of these, I don't know what to call them, opponents, false teachers, it starts with just babbling and ends up in falsehood. Because of them, the suitable servant must be reliable and have been entrusted with the gospel. Okay. That's part one. That's the characteristics of this suitable servant. If that's what they are to be like, what are they supposed to do? What's their job? Well, verses 22 to the end, their job is again two things, living and teaching. Living and teaching. They've got to live right. Flee the evil desires of youth, Paul says, verse 22. I wonder, what do you think the evil desires of youth are? What comes to your mind, right? Do whatever you want, yeah? Electronic music. Electronic music. <laughs> oh, man. I mean, sex, right? Isn't that what comes to mind? Flee the evil desires of youth, and we all kind of think it's that sort of stuff that they're into. Well, it's much bigger than that. The youth are immoderate. They're quarrelsome. They're ambitious. They're arrogant. They're aggressive. They're restless. Not this youth, except for a couple. Uh it's the opposite, in fact, of what he goes on to say. Flee the evil desires of youth and pursue righteousness, faith, love, peace, along with those who call on the Lord out of a pure heart. They've got to live right. And furthermore, they've got to teach. The Lord's servant, verse 24, must not quarrel. Instead, he must be kind, able to teach, not resentful. Those who oppose him, he must gently instruct in the hope that God will grant them repentance, leading to a knowledge of the truth. Now, let me point out two things in there. Firstly, having just said don't quarrel, Paul says teach against falsehood. So we don't simply say, well, we can never, we can never have any sort of discussion or argument. We, it's just right, anybody can have any idea and it's okay. Falsehood must be corrected. But notice, secondly, the way to correct it. Kindly, gently. Teaching and then letting God do the work. Now I wonder if there's something if there's something for me to learn from that. I wonder if there's something for us to learn. Repentance comes from God. 
I often think of that in evangelism. I think I've got to preach the gospel and then let God do his thing. But I don't often think about it with Christians and in discussion about matters of doctrine and all the rest of it, right? There comes a point where you teach and then you let God bring about repentance. For note, verse 26, that these who have been led astray, we teach them in the hope that they will come to their senses and escape from the trap of the devil who have taken, taken them captive to his will. These people aren't just mistaken, they are evil and they need to be brought back out of their wickedness. All right, what do we do? What do we do with this chapter? Well, firstly, clearly, it's a chapter to Timothy. I mean, it's a, it's a letter written to him, right? He, he got the letter, it's for him. And there are very specific instructions to Timothy in this letter. And yet one of those instructions is for Timothy to find other people to teach, that those people may in turn find other people to teach, and I take it that that is just passed down all the way down to us. And so it is a chapter first and foremost to the teachers, to those who are reliable and have been entrusted with the gospel such that they may teach others. Now a whole bunch of us teach. We've got kids' church leaders and boys' group leaders. We've got youth group leaders. We have scripture teachers. There are preachers among us. We have Bible study group leaders. So to you I say, are you a suitable servant? Reliable? Entrusted yourself with the gospel? Living in response to it? Teaching rightly? Furthermore, for all of us, do you pray for those teachers? For they must endure hardship. If it ever comes to the point where you've got to move church, I don't know why you would. You know, you're at Barney's, you've arrived. Anyway, if you ever do move church for any reason, don't get distracted by a leader full of charisma or intelligence, or really creative ideas. Don't get, don't get blinded by flashing lights and good music and the particular blue shade of carpet that you just love. Don't get distracted by any of those things. You want a teacher who is reliable, who will stick with it no matter the hardship and no matter the opposition, who has himself been entrusted with the gospel that he might teach you. That's what you want. So the weight of this needs to be felt by the teachers. However, it also comes further to all of us. Did you notice in verse 22? Flee the evil desires of youth, pursue righteousness, faith, love and peace, along with those who call on the Lord out of a pure heart. That is, you too are to be cleansed from what is ignoble, that you too might be a useful article for God, prepared to do any good work. You have received the gospel. I preached it to you tonight. Here it is. Jesus Christ, the risen King. So are you a Christian? Have you died with Jesus that you might live? Are you seeking to endure that you might reign? Furthermore, are you living in the light of the gospel? It calls upon you to flee the evil desires of youth. And particularly it calls upon the young because they are the ones who feel it the most. And instead to pursue, and have a think about these words, righteousness, faith, 
That is trust in God. Love. Peace. And you know what? If you've been entrusted with a deposit that is the word of God, it's not something you can keep to yourself. You've got to pass it on too. It might not be the formal passing on from teacher to teacher to teacher, but maybe it's to your kids, your grandkids, your students at school, your sisters, your siblings, your cousins, your friends. Your... Jesus is the risen king. They need to respond rightly to that too. You too have this gospel and so you too can keep reminding each other of it. I hope you make it your aim each week at church. Who am I going to remind that Jesus is the risen king this week? I mean, it seems like a bit of a waste of time if we don't. What could be more important than that? We need to contend with those who oppose the gospel. And whether that's inside the church or out, we are not immune to it. In fact, I take it that these guys, Amanaus and Philetus, were in the church. And we must continue to seek the next generation to receive the word of God. In a large house, there are articles not only of gold and silver, but also wood and clay. And so would you cleanse yourself to be an instrument for noble purposes, made holy, useful to God, prepared to do any good work. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you once again that you have astonishingly chosen people as one of your instruments in this world to bring about your purposes. Make each one of us suitable servants. In particular, those who have roles in teaching, make them reliable and trust them with your deposit that they may teach others. Help all of us to respond rightly to the gospel, Jesus Christ, the risen King. To flee the evil desires of youth and to pursue that which makes us useful for you. And Father, please strengthen us for endurance that we may run the race and receive the victor's crown at the end. Amen.